my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where it's about your empowerment with knowledge so you can keep more of what you make. I have something to share with you now that is a kick and a half to me. It is a report I don't know that anybody has ever done this kind of research before. But this is data going all the way back to 1981, maybe before you were born. And the data tracks, it's done by IC cars, it tracks which models are the ones that are most likely for a driver to keep 15 years or longer. Now, you think about that, that's an unusual category. The original owner buys a vehicle and keeps it for 15-plus years. And I think about the average vehicle owner in the United States probably keeps a vehicle somewhere around three and a half, four years. Not even as long as many people take out their vehicle loans. So I have numbers 1 through 15, and this is such an unusual set of stats. I'm going to share them all with you. The Toyota Highlander, which is number one, almost 20% of the ones purchased, people have historically kept for 15 or more years. That's got to be unprecedented in the automotive industry. Also on the list of the vehicles people keep the longest, the Toyota Prius in second place, followed by the Toyota Sienna, the Honda Pilot, Toyota Tundra, Toyota Sequoia, Toyota Tacoma, Honda Odyssey, Honda CRV, Subaru Forester, Toyota RAV4, Toyota Camry, Acura MDX, Toyota 4Runner, Toyota Avalon. Now, most vehicles people buy, let me tell you, they're not keeping 15 years. What's upsetting for me as an American is we got not a single American nameplate, even though the Toyotas, Hondas are overwhelmingly made in the United States. It's still, you know, foreign-owned automakers. We don't have a single American-owned vehicle that people are as loyal to that they're keeping routinely 15 years or longer. Toyota by far the most represented on the list. And so part of it could be the profile of a vehicle buyer. A lot of people in the automotive industry make fun of people who buy Toyotas and Hondas saying that they don't even like cars, that they're just rolling appliances to them. So if you want to make fun of those buyers, you can. But the thing about the kind of person who buys a vehicle that drives it for 15 years or longer, they're people that don't want to waste money on vehicle depreciation. They just want transportation. And the vehicles almost certainly have proven to be reliable, and that's why they're driving them. I want to say something to you. If you're someone who cycles through vehicles all the time, maybe that's just great for you and it's what you love. But what you may not love is the cost to you down the road. As I've shared with you before, financial guy for, uh, used to be with PBS, 
named Jonathan Pond ran an analysis that found that the average vehicle cycle of ownership of an American with a vehicle versus somebody who will keep a car 10 years or longer, that the person who keeps the vehicles they buy over their working lifetime 10 years or longer versus the average American car buyer will be able to retire with no other changes in their lives five years earlier just from the money they don't spend buying and cycling through vehicles too much too quickly. What's important to you? Catherine joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good. How are you? Great. You want to talk student loans? Let's see what we can come up with. Yeah. So I recently finished my master's program in December, and I am now just looking at my finances for loan repayments. And basically, my whole education was student loans. And it totals up to be about 300000 and that was undergrad and master's. So I was just wondering, is it... Say that number better? again. You said three hundred. Yes. Wow, that's a lot. Most of that comes because of the master's program I was in. is pretty spendy, and that was a physician assistant program. Oh, you're a PA. So that's great. Yes, thank you. So I was just wondering, my job will be in what is considered the public service and would fall under the loan forgiveness program. So I just didn't know if it was better to pay the minimum for 10 years and then have that money forgiven or yes. pay as much as I can. No. Get that <laughs> if you're asking me down. from your own personal standpoint, what would make the most sense? Absolutely. The first option where you pay the minimum required, and then at the Mm -hmm. end of the 120 payments, the rest is forgiven. And in addition, when the loan forgiveness is based on a public service job, then you don't even get taxed on what's forgiven, where people who work in a traditional job are taxed on the money that's forgiven, but their forgiveness takes typically 20 or 25 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let me tell um, you some things. Then, There's been a scandal uh-huh. that has been going on for the last two years involving the Public Service Student Loan Forgiveness Program. And I don't know if you're aware of the problems with the scandal. No, I'm not. So the Education Department has failed to act in good faith and has refused loan forgiveness for over 99% of people in public service jobs who have applied for loan forgiveness. And they've been doing it by saying, oh, well, you didn't do this one thing seven years ago, so we say you don't get it. And it's Mm -hmm. really just, um, it's dishonest, it's terrible, it's mean-spirited, And what I need for you to know, since you've just graduated and you have so much money at risk with $300,000 in loans, that you Mm -hmm. make sure all through the 10 years that you are complying with every part of the rules. And on the student aid sub-website of the education department, 
there is a guide that they call a help tool that will walk you Mm -hmm. through how to make sure from the very first payment you make that every payment is going to qualify for the student loan forgiveness. Okay. So the the sub web address is at studentaid.ed.gov. Print it mm-hmm. out. You have a printer? Yeah. Print it out, read yeah. every part of it. Um there are people blogging about how to deal with the intransigence and the dirty the dirty behavior by the education mm-hmm. department so you know what kind of traps they're laying for you trying to cheat you out of the loan forgiveness. And the whole mm-hmm. thing is the woman who's secretary of the Department of Education doesn't like this program. And if you don't like the program, go change the law. But the sure. people who are in public service who are supposed to have the loan forgiveness should have it, period. Okay, good. And that's what I was thinking. I just didn't know because I did start hearing these rumors of people not getting it forgiven and missing out on 10 years where it could have been. Oh, they're not rumors. It's what's been happening. And it Mm -hmm. is a complete outrage. And again, you don't like something, change the law, but only for people coming forward, not looking back to cheat people who in good faith participated in this program and expected by doing 10 years of public service to have their loans forgiven. Jason joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Jason. Hey, how are you doing, Clark? Great. Thank you, Jason. But you're not. What's going on with your home? Well, we had purchased a home about a year ago uh, from a professional real estate company. And we've been having minor issues here and there with them. And eventually we got moved into our home. Come to find out this year, I tried to get my bricks fixed around my house where there's cracks. Uh, the brick mason suggested that I go to a foundation expert first because he felt like it would be a waste of my money me to pay him to fix it because he, he thought that he would be coming out there multiple times. So oh, do you have, you have defects in your foundation? We don't know. Well, we didn't know based off of the inspection report that we got when we purchased the home. Uh, the inspection report said no no issues noted. It got a green check mark. Okay. All right. So uh, now you've got a brick mason telling you that they can't do, they don't recommend doing the work till you make sure your foundation's okay. Correct. And so if you call companies that do foundation work, you're going to get their opinions, but they're not engineers and they want to make money selling their services. Have you gotten okay. any estimates from any foundation companies? I have. I've gotten a couple of them so far. And what kind of money are they saying is needed to apparently repair your foundation? Between nine and eleven thousand dollars. No, no. All right. Um, don't do anything. Um, what I would do next is you want to hire a licensed engineer to come and evaluate the foundation. Okay. And come up with a re- recommendation if it is in fact faulty, how it would be fixed. Because you need that for um, dealing with the inspector 
and the inspector may have what's known as uh, E&O insurance to deal with something like this. Uh, sometimes, though, the inspector will have put in their hiring agreement that you would have had that they only have to refund you their fee if they miss something. Okay. You said you bought this from a, a property manager, a professional property management company? Correct. Um, once you have the engineering report, you should approach them as well. Okay. And maybe let's hope you're not looking at something as expensive as you've been told the nine to eleven thousand. But I would never engage in a repair like that without the professional engineer and his or her report. Because just because somebody says, "Oh, we'll do this and everything's going to be great," what happens if you still have the same problem and you spent that money? Right. And the engineer yeah. may decide that you have a cosmetic issue, not one that's fundamental to supporting the house, or may recommend a completely different method of fixing what they do find. All right. So uh, this is no fun, what you have here. How long ago no, did you not. say you closed? Uh, just under a year ago. All right. So I want that engineer quickly so that uh, with a professional owner of the property, a professional property manager, you may have a claim against them if they sold you a property that was not structurally sound. Okay. So, uh, and a year in many states is a key time. So that's why, and they're not going to rely on what some contractor says needs to be done. You need the professional licensed engineers stamp and signature on a report as to what the problem is and what the remedy should be. Gosh, um, good luck with this. Joshua joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Joshua. Hi, how you doing? Great, thank you, Joshua. How can I be of service to you? Uh, yes, I'm working um, th uh, three jobs right now. Um, Did you say nine... three jobs? <laughs> yeah. Uh, when do you nine... sleep? <laughs> Here and there. I listen to you um, at night, too, coming from one of my jobs, but I do like a nine to five, uh, Monday through Friday, and then a six to 11, about three times a week, and then I do some photography on the side and um I was I was I've been getting these ads like on the computer and seeing commercials uh where they have different apps that take your change and um it puts it into like investing and I think they charge you a dollar a month or something like that. Yeah, or, so you're talking they, about um stash and acorns? Yeah, those kind of apps. They're great. Was, uh, yeah, and they actually link to your bank account and everything. Is that is that safe? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm I'm really pleased with the results for people. Both of them. When uh, I forget which one was first, if it was stashinvest.com or it was Acorns. I don't remember which one came around first, but they're very mm -hmm. very similar to each other, and they both have this idea where you can micro-invest for $12 a year, and you can either just use spare change or you can add to it with money as well with either of them, and you can invest in uh, a variety of stocks. 
in using these, and I hear from people, I, really, I've been brought along on these because I was like, yeah, well. And now I keep hearing from people with them being out long enough, people who had no money saved and invested now have a few thousand dollars put aside. Wow. So I think it's great. And you haven't heard one being better than the other? Nope, I've not heard. Um, I mean, gosh, if you go online, you'll find people that love things and hate things. But right. these two are so similar, and I've never had, that I can recall, a customer service complaint about either app. Make sure you got good night's rest with all that working. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you make. So this show's about knowledge. It's about being able to act on that knowledge. But there are times that you may feel that I've given advice or guidance or answered a question from somebody that you feel like it took knowledge in reverse. Like I took somebody the wrong way or I gave bad guidance. I need feedback from you when I don't deliver. And that's why we have Clark Stinks. It's where you get to go on Clark.com slash Clark Stinks and post where it is you feel I didn't deliver or just really blew it. And others get to read your post. They can comment on it. They can agree with you. They can disagree with you. And then once a week, our producer, Krista, shares highlights from your posts here on the air. I should have never encouraged you to speak. You must think I'm pretty stupid. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're right, pal. So what you starting with? I am going to start with a couple of different posts about consumer reports or involving them been listening to you for a few years now, and I really have saved a lot of money from your advice. That's why I was shocked as a former appliance salesman that you recommend someone use consumer distorts to make an appliance purchase decision. Ooh, I've never heard them called that ever. Consumer Reports buys models from big box stores, sometimes even models made specifically for that chain. At times, Till Consumer Reports gets the report printed, the model has been discontinued or a serious issue becomes apparent. If you want good appliance purchase advice, wow, can I say that? Let's see you say it three times. If you want good appliance purchase advice, find a local small appliance store with their own service department and ask for real world feedback. What you will find are knowledgeable salespeople and often with the buying groups that most independent businesses are a part of, the prices between big box and local small businesses are very minimal. I appreciate that perspective as somebody who has been in the appliance business from the other other side of this. I'll tell you that when I try to guide people where to get unbiased advice, I believe and always have that Consumer Reports is the gold standard. Uh, You're saying that they're fool's gold, but I've always respected and trusted them. I've been to their testing facilities three times in uh, both the one in New York and the one in Connecticut, and I've been very impressed with the thoroughness and the dedication and honesty of the people I've met there. And here's a different post. Clark, you had a caller ask about how to pay for a kitchen remodel. 
You recommended that he purchase middle-of-the-road appliances versus top-of-the-line models. I don't disagree, but would also add that the caller should check out Consumer Reports. We remodeled our kitchen a few years ago and went with top-rated appliances from CR, and they have been the best appliances we've ever used. I paid $6 to have one month access to CR's scores, and that was probably the best spent money on the entire remodel. Well, that is quite a count, uh, point counterpoint right there, isn't it? Yes. You mention them too much, and then you don't mention them. Right. You can't get it right, man. Okay. Uh, a caller said she was paying off her mortgage. When she asked if there was anything she could do to prevent someone from putting a lien or taking another mortgage out on her property, you told her to basically not to worry about it. I wanted to mention two things you should tell everyone paying off their mortgage. One, get a lien release document from the lending agency. Two, call your county tax assessor's office and ask if they have a property fraud alert program. We live in Texas and they offer this and we receive an email anytime anyone has filed property changes with our name. It is based on your last name. You have to list all names you've used in the past. They send the full copy of the document filed with the courts that includes the address and the names filed under. I have received several and fortunately for us, they were not at our address or they were not us. The filings did have the same last name but different first names and or property addresses were different. Very helpful. Regards, D. Watson. D. Watson, thank you very much. I have never heard of a local governmental office doing that fraud protection, and that is a fantastic thing to prevent the problems with equity stripping that have happened, fortunately, rarely, but when they happen, it's really messy when somebody impersonates you and tries to steal your home. We had several about the tax law, so I'll read you a couple of them. Wow. I just listened to you explain that the new Fed tax law was written for two purposes, one, to reduce taxes on large companies, and two, to punish the 11 to 12 states. I can't argue with the first point, but I live in one of the 12 punished states, Minnesota. What is disappointing in your discussion was A, I submit that this is your opinion, which you stated as hard fact that it was designed to punish, and you should have said, in my opinion, and B, worse, you failed to mention how it punishes. These punished states, in the opinion of millions, have runaway state tax rates at the expense of federal tax revenue. You may or may not agree with that, but enough people believe that to the degree that you should have mentioned it. So, first of all, You should know, and if you've listened to me long enough, you know how much I am in favor of reducing taxes at the state and local level. I have been fierce about that all through the years. I'm a big fan of initiatives to reduce state income tax levels as long as there's sufficient revenue to cover the cost of services people want in a state. But at the same time, I am unalterably opposed to any congressional action that changes the tax code without both parties buying in. The problem with this was it was specifically designed, in my opinion, to punish people in specific states. And I just feel that's what was done. Now, it's not the federal government's role to punish states that tax their citizens more than I want them to be taxed. It's the role of citizens in that state to get rid of the elected officials 
who think it's a great idea to tax people to their eyeballs and above. So that's the distinction that you had people from one party, in this case the Republicans, passing a tax law specifically to settle scores with people in states that lean Democratic. And I don't like that just as much as I didn't like that Obamacare was passed back in 09, I think it was, as a single party thing. You don't make major changes in public policy in the country as one party changes. If you're going to get buy-in from people, it's got to be bipartisan. Okay, I'm going to skip one of these, which goes into that again. Um, And here's the last one. I'm just going to read part of it. Clark, recently you've only given one side on political hot potatoes while implying you called it down the middle. First, you characterized the limitation on SALT deductions as punishing a few blue states and attributed this to political motive. Another viewpoint a reasonable person could have would be that this lowers the amount that states with lower taxes have to pay to subsidize higher tax states by limiting their federal tax deductions. Second, you described the incentives that New York offered to Amazon in a way that made it sound like there would be direct payments to Amazon. Instead, Amazon was offered tax abatements, which would minimize future tax payments. While these were large incentives, and I agree that it is unfair to offer incentives to only a select few businesses, Amazon was going to invest many times the amount of the incentives in the community. In addition, they were committed to creating some 25,000 jobs, which were to average paying over $100,000 each. The benefits would far outweigh the eventual costs. Clark, please give both sides of an argument if you were commenting on political issues. Otherwise, you become a political advocate. In these cases, you walk like a duck, quacked like a duck, and dare I say it, smelled like a duck. Russell in Missouri. Thank you, Russell. So let me um, explain the nuance about the Amazon thing. What was terrible about New York kicking Amazon out was it signaled that New York was anti-business and anti-free enterprise. At the same time, I'm opposed to local governments and state governments giving incentives to select companies on the backs of other businesses that essentially have to pay higher taxes to subsidize the tax breaks that go to the chosen few. Amazon doesn't seem like an enterprise to me that needs tax subsidies, but the person competing against Amazon in a local community who's been paying taxes through the years, been running his or her business in the local community, they should, instead of giving Amazon all that tax break, they should instead benefit from a net lower tax rate. Clark, you keep talking about ordering inexpensive glasses online, but you're leaving out an important detail. Where do you go when the glasses are not right? Every time I get new glasses, I have to go back to the store and have them adjusted at least two to three times. Even sometimes the prism isn't right or the progressive lenses are not lined up right. What do you do then? That is a fantastic point. And it has been why Warby Parker, which is one of the original mail order onlys, has been opening individual shops in many communities around the country so that when people do need help with the glasses they've ordered, they can go in and get them. Nazini has no such ability. Uh, The other online sellers have no physical stores you can go to. So your point is completely valid. Hi, Clark. You were recently admonished in this space that the use of the phrase happy wife, happy life isn't very gender sensitive. 
Isn't the answer obvious? Happy spouse, happy house. Rick in Wexford, Pennsylvania. Well, we'll now credit that to you, Rick. As Rick says, happy spouse, happy house. Is that right? Yep. Thank you. Stop insulting your listeners who use landlines. In our community, (laughs) reception on cell phones is not great inside our homes. You will see many people walking up and down their driveway with cell phone in hand, trying to have conversations. My phone works best when held next to the front door or in the bathroom near my sink. It doesn't matter what service you have. It is the same for almost everyone. My husband has a different service for his job, and his company added a booster, which helps him. We are not in an extremely rural location. Between We're between Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and Wilmington, North Carolina. The old adage about name-calling applies here. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but your name-calling won't hurt us. But with those broken bones, we will be left shopping around for a low-cost MRI. Corinne. Thank you, Corinne. And I got to tell you a little story. Years ago, I found a better deal for a cell phone plan. And my wife was so mad at me because we had no home phone. And at that point, we now have Uma. And she could only make a phone call from the bathtub. Receive a phone call. Oh, God. oh man, was I in trouble. So your point <laughs> is very valid if the cell service where you live is really iffy or not good at all. All right. Dear Clark, during a recent podcast, you fielded a call from a gentleman who is from upstate New York. It was quite a stinky call because you assumed he was a Red Sox or Yankees fan and didn't even mention the other New York baseball team until the caller indicated he was a Mets fan because of his dad. To make matters worse, you said the Mets stink and hadn't won anything since 1969. Come on, Clark. The Mets won the World Series in 1986 against, all of, of all the teams, the Red Sox, in dramatic fashion. Moreover, they won the National League in 2000 and 2015, eventually losing to the Yankees and the Royals, respectively. Your baseball knowledge stinks more than a baseball player's socks after completing an extra inning game in the middle of the summer. You've watched too much football, but put on a great podcast and show. Steve. Steve, guilty as charged. I don't follow baseball. I don't know baseball. And so I remember the amazing Mets from 1969, and I guess I've got to know my history moving forward, and I apologize for my dissing of the Mets, and you didn't even mention me dissing the Jets in phone calls as well. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
Jonathan joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Jonathan, you are a new dad. Yes, we're, we're loving the new son. And how old's your son? He is five months old. And I understand that he's already ready to enter elementary school, that he's exhibiting such levels of brilliance at five months. <laughs> well, he's got a lot of his mom in him. Well, that's great. So she's a genius too, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, how can I be of service to you with your five-month-old? We want to go ahead and set up his college savings plan, but I'm 47 years old and probably three to five years away from a full retirement, and he'll I'll be 65 when he heads off to college, and I'm wondering if it's better to go ahead and start a 529 plan because I had heard that a Roth IRA in my situation might be better since it'll allow more more flexibility when we pull money out and I'm 65. You are not just partially correct, you are 100% correct. Okay. So for you, as a dad at 47, you are best served without doubt by funding college for him with a Roth. It means that money, the beauty is, if it means the money ultimately doesn't need to be used for college whatever happens in your life later there's other ways to pay for school your son gets a scholarship doesn't want to go whatever then the money is still there growing tax-free to be spent tax-free in retirement but because Roth money can be used for any purpose tax-free in retirement you would be free to pull that money out and pay for college so it gives you far more flexibility than doing the 529. Do you know what's ironic about your question? What? Whenever somebody calls to ask me about a Roth, I mean a 529, I always steer them to a Roth if they're not saving in a Roth or the maximum in a Roth before they put the first dollar in a 529 account. You were just a step ahead of me, and you have the ideal, perfect reason why the Roth comes first. Can I ask how old your wife is? 42. So at 42, for her as well, it's great for her to do a Roth and for you to have both Roth accounts so that that gives even more flexibility. Okay, great. So whatever you were thinking of contributing to one, how much money are you in a position to afford to put into a Roth each year? Oh, we should be able to max it out. So you would each, it would give you more than enough money to pay for your son's college and at the same time would help improve retirement security for both of you well down the road. Oh, well, that's awesome. That's great to hear. And by the way, you have made so many listeners jealous as could be that you have lived your life in a way that you're going to be able to retire at age 50. Uh, yeah. So yeah. you should feel great about that as well. And congratulations to you again on your young son. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.